Thank you, Dr. Keithley. Glad to see everybody here. And uh, politicians have uh, known for a long time never underestimate the power of a free lunch. <laughs> but I assume everyone here is uh, here willingly, and I appreciate your attendance uh, very much. For those of you who uh, may have to bolt early or simply want to know where we're headed, uh, the take home of Today's lecture is this, always to care, never to kill. Our response to the tragedy of terminal and debilitating disease must be care and not killing. Even when curative treatments elude, the sufferer is due our continued care, comfort for both body and soul. Simply defined, physician-assisted suicide is intentional self-killing, committed with the aid of a physician. And in contrast with euthanasia, the lethal act there is committed by someone other than the victim. Honing in on assisted suicide, we shall make several points this afternoon. First of which is that the topic is very relevant. Some here may be surprised to know that a bill calling for its legalization was recently introduced in uh, our state's legislature and the last uh, session uh, recently concluded. Uh, the bill went nowhere, sponsored by a handful of Democrats. It was referred to committee, and there it languished until the session expired. At present, uh, assisted suicide is legal in five states. The first state to legalize it was Oregon, which did so by a ballot initiative back in 1994 with a 51% vote in favor. In its first full year, 16 suicides were committed under, under that act, and last year the figure was 132 people uh, dead. And there's good reason to believe the number will continue to increase. In the wake of Oregon's ballot initiative, assisted suicide bills were introduced by legislatures, uh, leg legislators in 17 states. None of those passed. Uh, proponents of assisted suicide, they were sure that other states would fall like dominoes after Oregon did its business, uh, but that wasn't the case. Uh, there was a relative lull after that initial wave. Uh, however, here in the last year and a half, uh, there has been an invigorated movement with bills introduced in the legislatures of 28 states. And these include several states, Delaware, uh, Washington, D.C., North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Utah, states uh, by and large are red, uh, states uh, states that had never before considered uh, the issue. As a second point, I would uh, argue today that Christians need to know that assisted suicide and euthanasia truly are two sides of the same coin. Considering the uh, material act, uh, assisted suicide and euthanasia are both forms of meticide. That's the preferred uh, label from Jack Kevorkian, uh, the infamous Jack Kevorkian. And by the term, it's intended medically facilitated killing. As we'll discuss later, Kevorkian clearly was off uh, the reservation, but in lumping assisted suicide and euthanasia together, uh, he was on target. Uh, as medicide, both assisted suicide and euthanasia employ medical means with medical assistance. With assisted suicide, generally it's a massive overdose of sleeping pills, barbiturates. Usually it's seco barbitol. Back in the days, uh, you used to be able to call your physician in the middle of the night and actually get him on the phone. Can't do that now, but 
you'd call the physician or your mom would or whatever, right? And they get the physician on the phone and uh, de there developed the standard response, which was what? Take two aspirin in. Call me in the morning, right? And so now assisted suicide basically proposes take a hundred of these pills and don't call me ever again, right? With euthanasia, generally what's in view is uh, what uh, some would call active uh, euthanasia. Uh, with active uh, euthanasia, uh, death is induced by typically lethal injection administered by someone other than the victim. Euthanasia, however, may also be accomplished by withholding life-saving treatment as occurred in the infamous case of Baby Doe. Uh, many folks here are too young to remember that. But Baby Doe was an Indiana infant born in 1982 with Down syndrome and also a life-threatening birth defect uh, known at the time to be generally correctable by surgery. On advice, however, from their doctor who judged uh, the quality of life with Down syndrome to be too poor to merit survival, Baby Doe's parents refused surgery for their infant son. He died six days after birth from chemical pneumonia brought on by inhalation of stomach acid. A horrible way to go. Frequently participants in the debate over metacide claim that active euthanasia is illegal in the United States. I mean, even pro, uh, opponents of assisted suicide may parrot that claim, but that's not the reality. The reality is actually that active euthanasia occurs quite often on the front end of life as abortion decisions are linked to prenatal testing. With Down syndrome, for example, the best estimate coming from the UK is that abortion is chosen approximately 90% of the time when parents are delivered prenatal diagnoses with Down syndrome as the condition. These children in utero generally have no terminal defect, but rather they're snuffed out simply because they don't fit a very shallow vision of normality. Materially, assisted suicide and euthanasia are close kins, so also with respect to intention, as both advocate killing as a means for addressing intractable suffering. So the proposal is that you eliminate suffering by eliminating the sufferer. Aiming at death, the appeal is to compassion, but it's a very skewed vision of compassion. It's one that truly demands much, much less from caregivers. So as the taking of innocent human life is intentional, both assisted suicide and euthanasia constitute unjust killing. And in this particular form, I don't suppose really a need to justify uh, that uh, conclusion. I assume that all present uh, accept the Sixth Commandment as true and binding. If anything, I would uh, suspect that, uh, not suspect, I know evangelicals, they seem more challenged actually by the other extreme of medicine, which is medical vitalism, the notion that we must extend lifespan because we can. I don't have time to unpack that uh, today, but I would like to leave you uh, just with this uh, thought. In some cases, it is morally permissible to say thanks but no thanks to medicine's offer of a longer lifespan, or stated in another way, not all refusals or denials of life-prolonging treatment constitute suicide or quote-unquote passive euthanasia. As a third point, Christians need to be aware that physician-assisted suicide has a new public face. Early on, the standard bearer was Derek Humphrey, who started the 
organization called the Hemlock Society back in uh, the 1980s. But quickly it shifted to Jack Kevorkian, a Michigan pathologist. Kevorkian uh, clearly was a publicity hound extraordinaire, and he began his crusade for meticide in the late 1980s and would later claim to have assisted in over 130 deaths, the first of which was Janet Adkins, a 54-year-old organ woman who traveled all the way to Detroit, spent a day with Kevorkian, and then died in his vanagon that he called the Deathmobile. For a time, Kevorkian was able to elude criminal uh, conviction, partly because Michigan, Michigan didn't have a specific statute uh, outlawing physician-assisted suicide. In 1998, however, Kevorkian brazenly uh, challenged the authorities with a video that he allowed 60 Minutes to air in uh, November. In that video, Kevorkian himself administered a lethal injection to Thomas Yuck, a 52-year-old man diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And with that act, Kevorkian crossed the legal line from assisted suicide to active euthanasia. He was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to 10 to 25 years. So for a time, this was the public face of the assisted suicide movement, right? And an unwanted one at that. A law-breaking Dr. Death was certainly not the image groups like the Hemlock Society, which itself had uh, underwent a rebranding. It's now called Compassion and Choices. Uh, they certainly weren't uh, thrilled to have Kevorkian as their standard bearer. Two years ago, however, the movement was reinvigorated with a new standard bearer. At the age of 29, Brittany Maynard was diagnosed on New Year's Day in 2014 with brain cancer. Within days, she underwent surgery to remove the tumor, but at four months, doctors reported an aggressive recurrence and leveled a prognosis of death within six months. Contemplating her options, Brittany decided upon an assisted suicide, and so she relocated from California to Oregon, where it was legal. And after establishing her residency there, she obtained the lethal medications. But she held on to the drugs for several weeks while she was finishing her bucket list of life experiences. On November 1, 2014, six days after her husband's birthday and with family at her side, Brittany took the overdose and she died. Before she died, however, Brittany grabbed the opportunity to champion assisted suicide. With much encouragement from Humphrey and other Medicide advocates, she became the new face of the movement. Out was the ghoulish, law-breaking Kevorkian, and in was an emotive appeal to compassion from an attractive young lady struggling to make sense of terminal disease. After her death, Brittany's mother took up the banner, lobbying legislators in their home state of California to legalize assisted suicide. As a fourth point, if doctors say assisted suicide is a bad idea, people generally listen. This is true whether it's at the bedside or in public debate. In the states where assisted suicide has been legalized, acquiescence of organized medicine has been key, and that's been true in Oregon, that was true in Vermont, in Montana, in California most recently. Emotionally compelling as Brittany and her mother's 
impassioned pleas where the bid to legalize assisted suicide in California would likely, is, would likely have failed just as it had many times beforehand had it not been for the surprise announcement of the California Medical Association that it was ditching its long-standing opposition in favor of a quote-unquote neutral position. Now think about that. Can you really be neutral on the question of assisted suicide? Certainly not, because to say I'm neutral means to say, okay, we ought to allow it. So uh, clearly uh, an issue there, but uh, that's what happened. May 20th, the California Medical Association announces its neutral position. Well, a Senate bill that had been languishing for four months uh, there in the upper house in California, calling for the legalization of assisted suicide, quickly got to committee, quickly got to the floor, and within two weeks of the CMA's announcement, it was passed by the Senate. The Senate quickly referred it over to the House, to the Assembly, but the, the session had uh, come uh, uh, too close to, to its end, but advocates uh, knew something, uh, and that was that the governor was going to call a special session. So Governor Brown calls a special session. He does. A bill to legalize assisted suicide is introduced, and it's quickly passed. Governor, bill, uh, governor Brown, you know, by the media reports, agonized as a former Jesuit over, you know, his decision whether to sign that bill or not, but he did in October, and it became... Uh, effective law this past June and now the reports are starting to come in of patients availing themselves of California's new law. In truth, the CMA's decision was not a decision of its membership necessarily reflective of California doctors. It was a decision of a 40-member governing board and in general for very large organizations like that Leadership tends to be more liberal than uh, the general membership. But even looking at the nation's largest organization of physicians, the American Medical Association, or AMA, there's long-standing, unequivocal opposition to assisted suicide. In its official policy statement, uh, the AMA still declares assisted suicide to be fundamentally incompatible with the physician's role as healer. And like the national organization, the vast majority of state medical associations are on record as being opposed to assisted suicide. So also a number of specialty organizations, subspecialty organizations, whose members regularly deal with patients being targeted by assisted suicide. Kevorkian, again, he was a pathologist, okay? He didn't have clinical practice. He didn't deal with, deal with these patients. He was obsessed with death. Well, the people who work with these patients, neurologists, oncologists, palliative care physicians, by and large very opposed to assisted uh, suicide. Fifth point is that assisted suicide advocacy routinely employs much deception in looking to advance its agenda. First, uh, they're rarely candid about their full agenda. And that agenda is to see both forms of medicide, assisted suicide as well as euthanasia, legalized. Early on, they did press for the full agenda, uh, and they failed. And so they opted to refocus uh, their efforts on selling the uh, easier uh, sale of assisted suicide, knowing that once it becomes entrenched practice, the slide to euthanasia will be an easy one. And on that point, they're exactly right. Think about it. If people can be convinced that compassion requires 
giving despondent patients the means to kill themselves? Do you think they're going to withhold that option from individuals who are too disabled to pull the medical trigger? Of course not. Right now, assisted suicide, uh, as it is uh, legislated, requires that the patient actually ingest the medication with no assistance. So do you really think that folks who can't, you know, lift a cup to their mouth are going to be denied this right? I don't think so. But the slide's not going to stop there. In a few countries where euthanasia has long been tolerated, Netherlands in particular, it's well documented that voluntary euthanasia gives way to involuntary euthanasia. Doctors start deciding who should die, and they take matters into their own hands. In Belgium, approximately 25% of euthanasia procedures are carried out without the patient's consent. Where there is a right to die, quickly there becomes a duty to die. Second, early on in their PR campaign, assisted suicide advocates learned from polling data that calling assisted suicide for what it is impeded their effort. Telling people that they need to vote for suicide just doesn't win votes. Right? So words like suicide and killing had to be scrubbed from their message and in their place a number of euphemistic descriptors have been employed. So you'll see them, death with dignity, medical treatment, <coughs> aid in dying. Right? The deception carries through into the assisted suicide laws. If you look at any assisted suicide law on the books right now, you won't find the word suicide except where that law has to carve out an exemption for physician-assisted suicide from what in most, case, in most states is a specific statute that specifically prohibits, criminalizes assisted suicide. And so, for example, this is uh, from uh, Washington's law. And so you see the statement, actions taken in accordance with this chapter do not for any purpose constitute suicide, assisted suicide, mercy killing, or homicide. Okay. Again, state reports shall refer to practice under this chapter as obtaining self-administering life-ending medication. Uh, we're not going to call it physician-assisted suicide. We're going to call it obtaining and self-administering life-ending medication. And then I also highlight the right below it. Nothing contained in this chapter shall be interpreted to lower the applicable standard of care. So if you're having to tell people that this isn't assisted suicide, if you haven't been telling them that we're not lowering the standard of care, guess what? you're committing assisted suicide and you're lowering the standard of care. Thirdly, <coughs> there is the question of what conditions would qualify a patient to avail themselves of the assisted suicide law. Assisted suicide proponents publicly tout as their chief concern patients dealing with intractable pain on account of terminal disease. And by terminal, generally the law defines that as an incurable, irreversible disease that doctors expect will kill the patient within six months. In Oregon, however, it's no secret that patients intent upon killing themselves can simply shop around to find doctors willing to fudge the diagnosis or prognosis but even when physicians are playing square, they can be wrong. Not only are diagnoses 
often incorrect or need to be amended. Well, so also prognoses. This is a picture of Stephen Hawking, right? The renowned physical, uh, theoretical physicist, right? Born in 1942, Hawking was diagnosed at the age of 21 with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And he was given three to five years to live, right? This year he turned 74. Undoubtedly, Hawking's care over the years right, has been quite expensive. At least in the U.S., uh, ALS care typically averages, just the direct medical cost, typically averages around $30,000 a year. In comparison, a bottle of 100 secondal pills will cost somewhere around three to $5,000, right? Would you be surprised to know that health insurance companies have stated their willingness to cover assisted suicide? They're on board. There's a very perverse incentive, is there not? Sure. As for the appeal to intractable pain, only a quarter of patients killing themselves under Oregon's law cite inadequate pain control as a reason for choosing to commit suicide. The bigger concern, registering above 90%, is loss of independence and loss of functions deemed essential to an enjoyable life, quality of life considerations. These patients need to be told that dependence is no crime. That it's a privilege, it's a noble calling to care for them and to minister to their needs. But instead, assisted suicide doctors reinforce the errant self-assessment as they countenance the preposterous notion that severe disability merits killing. Fourth, proponents of assisted suicide frequently proclaim a constitutional right to die. But the Supreme Court, at least thus far, has found the opposite. In protecting their citizenry, states may prohibit assisted suicide. Right? Now, if this went back to the current Supreme Court, I'm not sure it would continue in that manner, but that's the, that's the settled law of the land at present. There's no constitutional right to die. But the Supreme Court does leave it up to states to decide whether they'll prohibit or legalize assisted suicide and or how they would regulate it. Often misrepresented as a right to die, the court has recognized a right to refuse unwanted medical treatment, to say thanks but no thanks to medicine's offer of more lifespan via various medical interventions. Doctors cannot force competent patients to take their medicine or to stay hooked up to machines. In saying no to assisted suicide, the right to say no to a medically prolonged death remains intact. But proponents of assisted suicide like to uh, engender confusion on this issue. They want people to be scared to think that if they say no to assisted suicide, that means they're going to be hooked up to a myriad of machines in a hospital for however long until finally their body gives out. That's not the truth. Truly what assisted suicide advocates seek is not a right to die, but a right to enlist others to the project of immoral killing. Fifth, assisted suicide advocates pose a false dilemma as they posit killing as the answer. If physician-assisted suicide is not available, they argue, people will resort to brutal forms of self-killing. 
clearly the option ignored is better care. Right? Patients requesting assisted suicide, they're often depressed and they're often receiving inadequate medical care. The answer to their suffering truly is better care of body and soul. So in the, in the laws, and most of these laws uh, that, uh, that come before these legislatures, they're just developed from a boilerplate put together by Compassion and Choices. And in those laws, typically they'll talk about how, well, we want to make sure that patients are competent when they're choosing assisted suicide. But they don't require any kind of psychiatric evaluation. They encourage it, but they don't require it. And in Oregon, only 5% of people availing themselves of that law actually get a psychiatric evaluation. In 1969, Princeton professor Paul Ramsey gave a series of lectures at Yale on end-of-life ethics that some scholars point to as the birth of bioethics. Reflecting upon the vitalistic bent of 1960s medicine and also the polar era of medicide, Ramsey argued that only a medical ethic anchored to Judeo-Christian principles can consistently navigate between the extremes. In particular, he argued for an ethic, uh, what he called it, of only caring for the dying. By that he meant that when cure eludes, the patient is not to be abandoned, but instead the focus of care must shift to comfort measures. We do not cease to care, but instead we redirect our efforts and we accompany the dying in their final days. Later scholars would come to summarize this Ramsian message as always to care, never to kill. And what Ramsey was lecturing on that summer in New Haven, well, the lady on the right, Dame Cicely Saunders, she was already putting into practice. A Christian nurse in London, Saunders founded in 1967 St. Christopher's Hospice, the world's first purpose-built hospice. In her long-standing labor for patients with terminal disease, Saunders developed the concept of total pain, as she called it, that acknowledged in the patient's suffering not only a physical element, but also psychological, social, and spiritual dimensions. Only caring, she included, must be multidimensional. From its humble beginnings 50 years ago, the hospice movement has mushroomed. Not in countries where medicide is tolerated, however. In 1997, when our Supreme Court was considering the issue of assisted suicide, Justice Stephen Breyer noted that in the Netherlands, where medicine, medicide has long been tolerated since the 70s, Breyer noted that there were only three hospices in the Netherlands. Whereas in Great Britain, where medicide was illegal, there were 185 hospices. Now hospice care has evolved much over the years. Not all programs operate these days on solid Christian principles. But the many that do are a tremendous resource for people struggling with terminal disease. Many patients in the crosshairs of Medicide, they're afflicted with disabilities that don't require hospice, but actually assisted living. Going to Saunders' broader concern, their care must extend well beyond the provision of physical needs. Spiritual needs are paramount. These patients need to be affirmed as fellow bearers of the divine image, as persons with God-given dignity deserving of respect.
and love. In requesting medicide, such must be taken as a call for assistance to be sure. But a lethal instrument doesn't fit the bill. In word and deed, our response must always be always to care and never to kill. And so I end the discussion here with a tale of two communities, as I would put it. Since California's law became effective this past June, uh, reports of patients killing themselves in my home state are emerging. In this picture is Betsy in a wheelchair, a San Diego lady afflicted with ALS who killed herself on July 24th. With assistance, Betsy organized a party with family and friends. And when the party was over, they brought her out to a Tesla. One of her bucket list things was to ride in a Tesla. So you see the people with cheery faces and all taking Betsy to the Tesla. Betsy gets in the Tesla. The Tesla drives right up to the hill to a makeshift tent where Betsy would then take her prescribed overdose with folks gathered around, just like Brittany. By Betsy's sister's report, no tears were allowed. On your right is a picture of my longtime friend, Ivan, with his wife, Tina. Even though Ivan's an ASU Sun Devil fan, uh, I... Uh, Still love him, and I respect him <laughs> greatly. It's interesting. I don't know if you can see it, but yeah, ASU fans—they have to—they uh, have to advertise that they were in the salad bowl. That just tells you something about ASU football, okay? <laughs> if, if your banner on the Coliseum is "Hey, we were in the salad bowl," you know. Anyways, hopefully Ivan's not listening to this because that would be bad. Back to the script, Ivan. After high school, he responded to a call to the ministry. He served as a youth pastor in Albuquerque, then moved to Glendale, Arizona, where he led a church plant that grew much over the years of his ministry. In 99, Ivan was diagnosed with ALS, and he was given two to three years to live. Contemplating a situation at that time, Ivan says he ultimately concluded that his task would be to leave my family spiritually physically and mentally healthy. And that included not only Tina and his sons, but also his church, where he continued to serve for a while stumbling, then with a cane, then with a walker, then with a wheelchair. His congregation loved him. They supported him. Even when his speech became very difficult to understand. Ivan retired in 2004 five years after receiving his diagnosis. He's still living. 17 years after receiving his diagnosis, on every Thursday, Ivan sends me an email to let me know that he's praying for me. Talking about his journey of the past two decades, Ivan doesn't gloss over the suffering that he endures in his highly debilitated state. He is, however, a very hopeful man on account of a very deep Christian faith. If you're interested to know more about Ivan, then I can commend to you his book entitled Cause or Effect, Are Tragedies God Caused or an Effect of the World? 
Ivan's situation presents uh, a picture of how Christians can respond to the tragedy of severe disease and debilitation. Again, there's no gloss over the suffering, but pointing to the hope that we have, Ivan gives us a great illustration that uh, our response to folks in his circumstance must be one of always to care and never to kill. And with that, I'd be happy to take questions. We'll, uh, we have time for just a few questions, and so um, if you would, I think we have uh, a microphone here. If you would like to ask your question, Jennifer also has a microphone. The, the questions are being recorded, so we ask that you use the microphone when you ask. So what question? Right here. Hey, Dr. Clary, thank yes, you sir. so much for a very fascinating talk, a very um, meaningful talk for you know today in, in serving in churches. And um, my question would be twofold. Uh, first of all, the Hippocratic Oath, I know, has changed over time, many times. Um, how does the PAS, and it sounds like from what you said, the AMA are, are leaning more towards, you know, uh, my understanding of the Hippocratic Oath, which is the preservation of life. Mm -hmm. um, how are they, first of all, how are they going to, you know, what are they doing to get around that, or are they mm -hmm. trying to rewrite the definition? And my second question um, really involves um, maybe a more pastoral uh, stance. You know, how do we, in, a, in our culture, the churches I've served in, death is almost a four-letter word. You know, people, we don't see many churches now with, uh, you know, uh, graveyards and things like that. Um, we, we don't even use in our language, you know, I'm sorry that your husband died. I'm sorry for your loss is what we say. Um, so how do we effectively minister in a culture, you know, uh, in, in regards to these issues uh, when, you know, we, we see death taking out of the home, and now it's medicalized, and, um, and, and, and giving people the hope you know, of, of the gospel. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in the black plagues, when, you know, 60-some mm -hmm. percent of Europe died, mm -hmm. <laughs> and ours, Moriendi literature, death was looked at as a visible sermon. It was a process, That's a right. process of dying in the home. But we don't see that mm -hmm. anymore, mm -hmm. and death has become a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So how pastorally can we minister to our people mm -hmm. in that situation? Yeah, very, very good questions. Uh, with respect to uh, medical ethics, you know, uh, as you note, the Hippocratic uh, Oath has uh, fallen on hard, hard times, particularly in uh, the circle of ethicists, folks who sit in the ivory shower, uh, ivory uh, tower, and you know, smoke on their pipe or whatever, and write all kinds of sterile things. But at the bedside, it's uh, difficult to shake uh, the notion of do no harm. And so. Uh, what you see in the AMA's policy there simply is, uh, and, and I hesitate even to call it a vestige because I still think it's very strong. It's very difficult to shake uh, the notion that it's wrong to harm a patient. Uh, yes, you can cause momentary pain and whatever else, and so surgery is allowed, but you do so with what? With the benefit of the patient in mind, a living patient in mind. And so, uh, do no harm uh, is still a very forceful uh, part of the medical ethic, even if ethicists don't uh, give it a lot of uh, fanfare. 
On the pastoral question, uh, I think you're, you're helping answer your own question, which is a recovery of, uh, quote unquote, the art of dying. Uh, there's a very good book uh, written by Alan Verhey. Alan was a uh, ethicist at uh, Duke um, University, passed away a couple years ago. After a, a, a very significant medical scare, Alan was uh, moved to, uh, to do much research on this art of dying. And as you indicated, for many years, uh, it wasn't a bad word. Actually, it was just part of the instruction. The worst thing uh, in times past, one of the worst things that could happen for Christians as they thought about death was that uh, they, would have, they would have an immediate death, be struck by lightning or something like that. Nowadays, I mean, you know, it's like you talk to people, well, you know, what do you consider the good death? Well, I just hope, you know, it's either getting struck by lightning uh, right after I finish putting on the 18th hole or whatever. <laughs> you know, nobody wants a protracted death, and I get that. Part of the fear has been generated by a medicine that I think in many cases goes too far. But uh, the idea of preparing our people for death, uh, to think very uh, Christianly about it, to approach it uh, in a way that is very biblical, I, I do think that there has to be work done in our churches, whether it's from the pulpit or whether it's in the teaching. There's a great book by John Kilner uh, uh, entitled uh, Why the Church Needs Bioethics. You know what? Uh, folks are going to get their information from somewhere. Okay, and right now, largely, it's the physician. Well, great if it's a Christian physician who's committed to, uh, you know, the sanctity of human life and all, but uh, that's certainly not guaranteed. All right, well, people in our pews, they need to be getting their information uh, straight. And that requires, I think, uh, counseling and instruction within the churches. Thank you. Very good. Uh, next question. You have alluded to uh, a couple of times uh, you, the, the notion of, of uh, heroic medicine going too far. I think you called it um, medical vitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that uh, for, many, for, for many pastors, I know I've been an interim pastor this year and have had to struggle with uh, the, the questions that, that church members have asked me about someone who is um, being kept alive by extraordinary measures and then mm -hmm. them choosing, no, I'd rather just go to hospice. Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing, uh, uh, that's the kind of thing that, that I think many uh, uh, struggle with. Okay, at what point uh, do we say enough's enough? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that this, this is time to move uh, to the next phase, and they, they wonder, am I doing some type of passive suicide, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you kind of mentioned that. Do you mind talking mm -hmm. a little more about that? Sure. I mean, I said I wouldn't unpack it, but I'll go ahead. Yeah. Okay. I know, you've, I, you've, I, but I wanted open, you to. You have opened <laughs> the door, and, uh, but thank you, Dr. Keithley, very much. Uh, definitely, that's a critical issue. Saying thanks but no thanks to medicine's offer of a longer lifespan. This is not an issue uh, among secular ethicists. This is a question that only those who are committed to the sanctity of human life grapple with. And it's a question that, at the end of the day, uh, requires uh, 
consideration of a very simple fact. Is God still provident? Is God, does God still retain sovereignty over the question of life's end, life's terminus? You know, it's not been that long ago when Christians routinely, you know, would acknowledge, yeah, there's a divine prerogative. You know, maybe it happens, you know, on the golf course with the lightning. But more often, actually, it seems that the exercise of God's prerogative is processional. Like Hezekiah, God delivers the message. Maybe not through a prophet, but through now a, a doctor, but delivers the message, you're going to die. Get your house in order. Sometimes God graciously extends time to, quote-unquote, get our houses in order. That may mean uh, working on fractured relationships, first of all with him, but then with those uh, in family and whatever. So when God graciously allows time to get our house in order, then go for it. Be thankful. But there, there do come times uh, when... Uh, it seems that that prerogative is being exercised. Someone is facing an incurable, eradicable disease that is naturally lethal. And in combination, that they seem to have no further capacity or call for putting their house in order. My work, dissertational, dealt with the question of, quote-unquote, the vegetative state working in that particular issue that really brought me to think a lot more about this, this idea of when can we say thanks but no thanks to the offer of more lifespan. I would argue that there are cases where one can say no thank you and in so doing not be aiming at death but be aiming at a concession to God's prerogative, to being called home, uh, to be called heavenly, heavenward. So uh, it, is a, it is an issue that I think we, as evangelicals, have not given enough clear thought to, partly because we've been fighting the battle for the sanctity of so, uh, human life so long with folks who are you know, taking human life that clearly has potential. and what, you know, it, We've been fighting that battle so long that any suggestion that we might say, you know, no thanks or turn off the machine, you know, would somehow be a concession to the folks uh, on the other side of this uh, battle, the uh, advocates of this culture of death, as uh, John Paul called it. So it's a great question.